0: The Kansas legislature is in the middle of a three-week break with senators and representatives having wrapped up a whirlwind regular session on Friday, April 1st. To talk about what bills made it through, what bills didn't make it, and what remains to be done during the upcoming veto session, we have an all-star installment of this week's Kansas Reflector podcast with our Reflector editor, Sherman Smith, senior reporter Tim Carpenter, and reporter Noah Taborda. And I'm Opinion Editor Clay Wirestone. Uh, So thank you all so much for being here today.
1: It is the pleasure of a lifetime, Clay.
0: Likewise. So Sherman, let's start with you. Um, As the legislative session began, we were in the middle of the Omicron wave of the COVID-19 virus pandemic. Um, How did that play out during the session as legislators
1: were trying to respond to the virus or not? You know, in January, we had hospital leaders who were just begging Kansans to take basic precautions, get vaccinated, because even nearly two years into the pandemic, we were setting new records of cases and and sometimes deaths, and and it was just kind of staggering. We hit the 7,000 death mark and then very quickly hit the 8,000 death mark for the, the pandemic total. Uh, and this was also at a time just weeks after the The governor's administration had sacked the previous health secretary, Lee Norman, who was maybe a little too straightforward in speaking about what the virus was doing in Kansas. Uh, So we started with a nomination of a new health secretary, Janet Stanek, uh, who eventually was uh, given the okay by the Senate. Uh, Meanwhile, the legislature turned to some curious proposals from Senator Mark Steffen, a Republican anesthesiologist from Hutchison, Uh, He wanted what we kind of refer to now as the ivermectin amnesty bill. This was one that said any doctor like him uh, who had prescribed ivermectin to patients would be cleared from any discipline uh, from the Board of Healing Arts. He revealed as he was talking about this that he was under investigation for doing this from the Board of Healing Arts. Uh, He also proposed... uh, basically ways to allow children to opt out of the vaccine requirements when they go to public school or child care facilities, and then another bill that would strip the the authority of the health secretary and public health officers around the state to fight infectious d- disease and to do contact tracing and, and some other components tied into this. Uh, The House kind of refused to listen to any of this. The Ivermectin amnesty bill and the vaccine provisions of that did pass the Senate. Uh, The House gave no consideration to it. The the deal with the KDHE secretary came up at the end of the session when the Senate tried to hold uh, hostage some foster care bills from the House and said, we're not going to move forward with these these provisions that would uh, help the foster care system unless you take this KDHE bill in the House said, we're not going to do it. So they all, all of them went down in flames. Of course, this could come back uh, in May, but as of now, none of this has passed the Senate. But you wouldn't know that by reading a letter that Senator Stephan sent out to 250 medical professionals in the state. Uh, He says he sent it to 250 medical professionals in which he said, you know, the Senate passed this law and uh, by talking to people in the legal community who he doesn't define, Uh, doctors should know that if they're not prescribing ivermectin to patients for early treatment of COVID-19, they're going to be held in wanton disregard. And a lot of doctors received this and just kind of panicked because they thought that this was an uh, official statement from a a state senator, came on Senate chamber letterhead, uh, and they didn't understand that this was not actually the law and that there's there's actually nothing in this letter that, that they have to abide by. So
2: let me get this clear. A state senator uh, sent out a letter to a bunch of hospitals and so forth suggesting that a quote-unquote law had been adopted and that they needed to abide with the, the way that he viewed the COVID pandemic. And in fact, it was just a <clears throat> excuse me Senate-passed bill. The House hadn't approved it. The governor hadn't signed it. And this is just kind of a wild assertion by a physician who happens to serve in the Senate.
1: That's right. He actually takes the the voice of the, the Board of Healing Arts almost. He says, you know, they're not going to interfere with you anymore. Pharmacists aren't going to interfere with you. Uh, you have to do this.
0: Also an unsubstantiated claim. Correct. Right. Well, and also the fact that he himself is acknowledged to be under investigation by
1: that same Board of Healing Arts. That's right. Which uh,
2: raises ethics, conflict of interest
1: issues galore. It it does. the The Board said that... Uh, they have not issued any direction on any specific drug. The, the underlying standard here is what's known as the standard of care. Uh, are you doing what a reasonable physician would do when using off-label drugs? Well, and
0: when it comes to, to wild claims, though, I think the, just this last session has shown that there are a lot of wild claims in the Kansas legislature having to do with COVID-19 and treatments for it. So, uh, Tim, uh, turning to a different subject here, uh, Kansas, uh, coming into this legislative session had a $2.9 billion, uh, surplus in the bank. Uh, tax receipts had been very solid for a couple of years. Uh, but then in the early days, uh, of the session, we saw a lot of pressure for a giant tax incentive, uh, package to support a mystery mega project. That some anonymous company was possibly interested in bringing to Kansas. So let's talk a little bit about that and how that kind of shaped tax policy uh, during the session. Okay, you're right about the uh, mega uh, economic development project.
2: You know, think of with that amount of money on the table, the whole debate about tax policy became just imagine a Christmas tree full of lights and all kinds of shiny decorations. And so everybody with a tax idea threw it into the hopper. So the legislature did uh, relatively quickly deal with a request from Governor Laura Kelly to approve what's called the apex bill. And that's a basically a billion dollars of incentives uh, reportedly to attract the Panasonic battery plant to Johnson County uh, with the promise of possibly $4 billion of economic development and 4,000 jobs. So that was approved, signed by the governor, but we don't know yet exactly the fate of the project. The legislature also approved another tax bill more recently right before they adjourned that basically had a $90 million a year, $100 million a year impact. And uh, it was part of a a conglomeration of 29 bills, which was potentially a, a tax policy record and uh, one big chunk of that would be that if you pay property taxes to support public education, right now you get your first $20,000 evaluation on your home exempted from that tax, from that $20 mil tax. Now you're going to have the first $40,000 exempted, assuming Laura Kelly signs the bill. So that's the parts that part of the summary of what Kansas legislature has done on taxes. And here's what they haven't done they specifically haven't taken care of the one thing that the public wants, and that's a reduction of the food sales tax on groceries. So um, the governor requested that it just be wiped out. Let's eliminate it. We got the money to do it. Let's do it. And I think kind for political reasons, the GOP legislature said, uh, we're not eager to give Laura Kelly a big election year win. So there's a proposal floating out there that would phase it out over three years. Uh, Governor Kelly continues to press for it to be eliminated. There are two other chunks of tax policy hanging out there. Uh, One of them basically would provide uh, uh, benefits to businesses that were uh, required to close or reduce hours during the pandemic. And another one has a bunch of tax credits to try to spur uh, rural housing construction.
1: Tim, there's a question about whether the state could afford the food tax bill now that they've given the the incentives for the the Apex project. I think the food cutting the food sales tax entirely would be about four hundred million dollars a year. Uh, Clay you said we started with two point nine billion in surplus. I think if you go back to around two thousand eight in the the economic downturn, then three or four governors ago, this is highly unusual to be in a situation where there were billions of dollars to figure out how to, to give away or spend this or what what we're going to do with it. Usually you're trying to like meet all your obligations and borrow from the highway fund and do everything you can just to skate under the, uh, the, the threshold and have a couple hundred million left around.
2: This is a grand time to be a legislator. Lots of times people come in here and they got to figure out how to cut the budget, tighten the budget, and they don't really don't have money for t- tax breaks. But this time we do. When Governor Brown back was here, he dramatically reduced the income tax, right? Uh, A billion dollars. And eventually he had to raise the sales tax on everything to try to keep the the budget afloat. And that pushed the sales tax on groceries up to 6.5%. And it's among the highest in the country. So it is an opportune moment to modify tax policy and bring some equity. I think, uh, you know, the Republicans want to reduce business taxes, and and maybe throw something to the consumer at the end of the session. So I'm not giving up on the food sales tax reduction. It might be a good public policy to gradually reduce it rather than do it all at once. Uh, but, but it, you know, so so it's a controversial stuff, and we still have to get a decision out of them about what they're finally going to do on taxes.
0: Well, and there's also, I, I don't think we've mentioned this, the nearly a billion dollars, right, that they want
1: to uh, funnel into CAPERS to... That's right. I think it's uh, maybe a billion and a quarter that would be paid out over time. I think every few months they would dump some more in. So I I thought it was a billion dollars, and part of it was to pay off some
2: uh, CAPERS contributions they didn't complete in years past, Uh, but it's really to hit the bottom line of CAPERS so their investment fund and their portfolio is that much stouter.
0: Yeah, but as the saying goes, a billion dollars here, a billion dollars there, and pretty soon you're talking real money. Um, So, Noah... um, We've been talking so far here about uh, just everyday kind of legislation, about bills that go through the House, go through the Senate, you know, signed or vetoed by the governor. But we also saw action this year on several potential constitutional amendments. So that is changes that would actually go into the state's basic, you know, founding document. So can you tell us a little bit about those?
3: Yeah, we've had a a lot of proposals that have been either swirling around the rotunda in in the past or... Have been gaining traction really fast, I think, amid the, the pandemic. To either install legislative oversight over a separate branch of the Kansas government or over local government uh, tends to be the trend. The big one is the legislative veto, uh, as it's being called, that uh, passed the House 85 to 39 and the Senate 27 to 12. So it just squeezed by the two thirds majority required to put it on the November ballot. And basically, what this would do is it would amend the Kansas constitution to allow the legislature to revoke any rule or regulation passed by the executive branch agencies. Um, And this kind of arose over frustration with the Kansas Department of Labor, new uh, regulations that they were considering. I think there was frustration with the Kansas Department of Health and Environment and Governor Kelly, and it's just a way for them to say, you know, when they don't like something that runs contrary to their policy, to have an avenue uh, to declaratively repeal it without, you know, uh, going through traditional uh, legislative pathways. So there's a,
1: a catch with this, which is if the voters approve it, it gives the legislature the authority to someday pass a law that allows them to do this. It doesn't automatically give them the ability to override the governor. And I feel that's worth pointing out because if if Governor Laura Kelly wins re-election in November, the legislature could rush in in January and take action to start overruling her. But if her opponent wins in November, then they never have to worry about this. All right. So I think when there's a legislative strategy
2: uh, that attempts to control the executive branch, you know, we're supposed to have three separate branches, equal government, uh, but that's not exactly how the legislators would like it. So originally... Uh, a governor might just adopt an administrative policy. Ah, Then the legislature said, that's not good enough. Let's make them pass a law on that. And now that's not even good enough. We're going to be fiddling around with the Kansas Constitution and larding it up with a bunch of ideas that don't belong in the Constitution, right, because it's so difficult to unwind. You can repeal a bill. Amending the Constitution again to get rid of something?
1: Pretty hard. And speaking of the separating these branches of government, there's also a constitutional amendment to give the Senate oversight of who ends up on the Supreme Court.
3: Right, and that one ended up failing. Uh, And basically this was proposed by Senate President Ty Masterson. He has proposed this idea in the past. He started out with two amendments, one that would go to the federal model, which ended up gaining traction. And that basically gives the Senate oversight to confirm uh, any Supreme Court justice. Uh, that ended up falling one vote short of the needed two-thirds majority. And currently, basically, the way they do it is a merit-based system. They have a nine-member panel where they will send a nominee to the governor, who will appoint one. Uh, and after the new justice serves on one year on the court, they stand for retention vote. And basically, this came out of uh, a triple play scandal in 1956, in which the resignation of a Supreme Court justice resulted in the incumbent governor resigning from his post, his former lieutenant governor appointing him as the replacement justice, and while legal at the time, the sequence of events uh, led to the need for a system that would prevent this sort of uh, political influence uh, in the, in the court. And there was also an attempt
0: to pass what, in some other states, is called a taxpayers' bill of rights amendment, um, where you would it would essentially require supermajorities to pass some sort of tax policy. But I believe that that also uh, fell short of the two-thirds vote needed in the Senate in those it was last basically few days. basically
2: focused on tax increases. Yes, I think. Yeah. Right.
3: And that and that, that fell short as well. Uh, that was twenty-five to, to fourteen. So both that and the uh, Supreme Court Justice Amendment failed. Another amendment that did pass for local control was how sheriffs would be selected. Um, Basically, right now, Riley County is the only county that has their county commission appoint a sheriff. There's rumblings in Johnson County about how they go about selecting a sheriff. But this would basically put it up to an election uh, across the entire state. Again, a way to install legislative control over, uh, this time, local government.
2: Just to quickly clarify Noah's comment about the vote, in the House and Senate, to get an amendment to the Constitution on a statewide ballot, you need a two-thirds majority of both chambers. Governors have no role in deciding whether, no veto power over constitutional amendments. And then when it gets onto the ballot, it's just a simple majority. You know, it's 50% plus one vote.
1: And if this were to, to pass, it would make it so that on a county-by-county county basis, you would have to have a a general election vote for the sheriff. You couldn't have a situation like they're talking about in Johnson County where a board of commissioners would hire a sheriff like some cities do with a police chief. Mm-hmm. Uh, we would be remiss, by the way, if we didn't note that there's another constitutional amendment coming up for a vote in August. The, the
0: elephant in the room, so to speak, of um, an amendment in the primary election, not even the general election that would allow the Kansas legislature to make laws restricting access to abortions uh, in Kansas uh, that this was this is on the ballot essentially because the Kansas Supreme Court said that our state constitution protects the right to uh, right of a woman to choose that kind of health care and so I would expect that of all the amendments we've talked about that's going to be the one that the most People talk about as we, we head into the fall. Um, so Sherman, back to you now. Um, every 10 years, the U.S uh, attempts to count everyone uh, in the country. Uh, it's the, the census. and you know one of the downstream effects of the census is not just that we know who and you know not just that we know where everyone is and how many of them there are, but also that we redraw. Of various legislative maps. So tell us a little bit about the
1: redistricting process in Kansas and what happened there. Well, first off, the census showed that there were 78,000 people more in Johnson County on the east side of the state than there were 10 years ago, while western Kansas and other rural parts of the state continued, you know, decades and, and more than a century really of population loss. And so it does require some redrawing of these boundaries for senate districts for house districts for the state board of education and of course for the congressional districts Uh, the state gets four delegates to the u.s congress so much of this process i think we could have just predicted very easily how this was going to play out former senate president susan Wagel, in september of 2020 as we first reported at the kansas reflector uh, was giving a speech at a public forum in wichita and she said you know There's a way that we can draw maps that make sure that four Republicans get elected to to Congress, and we don't have to worry about Sharice Davids, the the U.S. representative from the 3rd District, the Kansas City area, the only Democrat uh, being in Congress anymore. And she pointed out, all we have to do is get a two-thirds majority in both the Senate and House uh, for Republicans, and we'll make it happen. And that's exactly what they did. Uh, They went through the motions of holding public hearings last summer, which they Uh, announced a couple days before they were going to hold them, before the census data was even available to look at. Uh, They held them during working hours during the day, heavily criticized as to whether uh, this really allowed people to to turn out. But the people who did turn out said over and over again, we need to make sure we keep the Kansas City metro area together. Uh, Of course, what the legislature did immediately when they came in was introduce a map that would divide Wyandotte County, the Northern part of Wyandotte County from the third district, taking a uh, community that is maybe the most diverse in the state, uh, heavily black and Latino community, take them out of Sharice David's district, replace them with a bunch of voters in rural areas to the South of Johnson County. Uh, this is already gone to court in a trial. Uh, major groups from all over the state and all over the country filed lawsuits in three different cases. Uh, to challenge this, and, of course, Susan Weigel's comments uh, from a couple years ago were the first thing that they played at the trial. Uh, This is a, a novel case because before this would have always gone before federal courts, but the U.S. Supreme Court in 2019 said, actually, partisan gerrymandering isn't something federal courts should take a look at anymore. So what they are asking the state courts to do is determine whether the state constitution written you know 160 years ago uh, includes a guarantee that you can't do this. And we'll have to see if they, they can find that in an equal protection clause. Uh, in the meantime, they've also passed the uh, revised Senate and House districts. There's a lot of heartburn there. Again, party line votes. We'll see uh, if the governor vetoes that, if they override the veto on those.
2: So Sherman, this is Tim, Mm -hmm. and I don't expect necessarily legal challenges in the House, the Kansas House, Kansas Senate, and the Kansas State Board of Education maps.
1: Well, I think that we still could. Um, One of the the problems here is the timeline, Uh, and we've seen federal courts step in even on state court challenges elsewhere in the country and say, we're too close to the primary or we're too close to the general election. You're just going to have to live with the maps this year. So if you're talking about coming back in May and overriding a veto, that sets the timeline way too close to the filing deadline in May. Uh, And I just think the litigation for that is going to be much more difficult uh, unless there's an expedited process here uh, that starts with the congressional map. The Supreme Court, the Kansas Supreme Court could say, uh, actually, you can't do this, and we're going to order some court panel to rewrite all the maps. Uh, we just, we don't quite know how that's going to play out yet. Yeah, the
2: litigation doesn't have to happen tomorrow. We that's could right. proceed with voting in 2022 and somebody could still file
1: a lawsuit, right? Yeah, you could file a lawsuit uh, and it could play out sometime next year. Maybe mm-hmm. by 2024, things are different.
0: Yeah. Well, I also think it's it's important to note, and I, I wrote a column about this uh, earlier this week, that... You know, this is a, a really egregious example of, you know, the public telling legislators very clearly and overwhelmingly that they want a certain thing. And it was one of the constant repeated refrains was, don't split Wyandotte County, don't dilute the ability of this diverse community to choose, its, to choose its elected representative, and then legislators went ahead and did it anyway.
1: Right. Maps get introduced. 48 hours later, there's a hearing, and then it's passed out of the Senate a day later. 100% of the testimony says, don't do this, and they didn't care. Yeah. So it's just evidence that the redistricting process is at its core political, and the majority party
2: uh, tries to mess with the minority party. At least you could say the legislature in 2022 did their job, because 10 years ago, they floundered so badly that a three-judge panel on the U.S. District Court drew the maps, and they did drop them two, three days before the filing deadline, and they didn't care about people's old districts or re- getting reelected or anything else, and it provided yeah. enough chaos 10 years ago that the legislature avoided that this year.
1: Well, and speaking of political process, to get this vote uh, through the Senate on the congressional map, they had to make a deal with, as we mentioned earlier in the this uh, episode, Senator Mark Steffen, uh, he and a couple others initially voted against doing this and then switched their votes after receiving some concessions. For Steffen, it was uh, support to get his ivermectin amnesty bill through. So, uh, Tim,
0: turning back to you, um, you know, education has been, I feel like, a constant uh a constant factor in the news is we've had the pandemic with school closures and then controversies last year uh, and this over "quote unquote" critical race theory. Um, one of the biggest jobs that the state legislature has uh, is funding schools in Kansas. So take us through a little bit of the education uh, policy journey this session. Yeah, there's a lot of moving
2: parts here. I should say first of all that the final K-12 state budget for public schools is not completely finished yet. The legislature will take a look at revenue estimates, come back on April 25th and complete that process. So that's not quite resolved. Um, the legislature, how Senate did, kind of by narrow margins, I think, pass something called the Parents' Bill of Rights. And, you know, it's, um, it orders public schools, not private schools, public schools, to allow parents to inspect the uh, teaching materials that, that teachers going, are going to provide to children in class, and the parents under this legislation could uh, opt their kids out. Uh, that's before Governor Laura Kelly. We'll see what she does with it. Um, it would, that piece, same piece of legislation also encourage uh, parents to challenge uh, library books uh, for the purpose of getting them thrown in the garbage uh, and not on the shelves of the public school library. There's, uh, as you can imagine, on this Bill of Rights, there's uh, people on both sides of the political spectrum. The Senate Democratic leader, Dinah Sykes, suggested it was the bullies a Bill of Demands, not a Bill of Rights. And Governor Kelly said it was uh, uh, what amounted to uh, just another vehicle for demoralizing public school teachers. A Republican from Wichita, uh, Representative Penn, said, our kids do not belong to the state, to educrats, a new word, to teachers, uh, teacher unions, uh, or, uh, or anyone else. They, they belong to parents. So that's kind of the genesis of this, that parents' rights uh, should dominate the public education process. And I, I think it creates a lot of complexity for public schools to administer a thing in which parent A, D, and Z could opt out of these three tests going into the year, or these documents, or this book, and it's just become a nightmare to follow. There's still a bunch of stuff hanging, um, tax dollars for private schools. Uh, you know, we had a bunch of uh, uh, rhetoric about teaching critical race theory. I suppose some of that could surface in the future. Who knows? Um, uh, there's also a bill, I think, out there regarding open enrollment, where you could you could go to school, uh, basically uh, enroll in a public school anywhere you want. Uh, I think the idea is that school districts would set a maximum capacity level for the number of schools that they could teach at a particular grade, particular school, particular district, and you could apply to enroll there if there was space available. Uh, Otherwise, uh, you know, in Kent City area, if you had transportation, why wouldn't everybody just go to Blue Valley Elementary School, you know? Uh, There's a lot of... Action here, and I think a lot of it is to gin up the uh, partisan political base. Both the you know the National Education Association and the teachers have their perspective, and then conservatives, many of them don't have kids in public schools, uh, have their perspective, and that was really uh, people just headbutting uh, for the past three months.
1: Tim, I'm trying to imagine a scenario where a parent already uh, could not find out what their child was being taught in school. You know, teachers want to be engaged with parents, but also you could ask your, your child, what, what is, show me your homework, what did they teach you today? I, I've struggled to understand why this is necessary.
2: Well, we
1: raised two, two kids, and uh, you ask them what they learned at school today,
2: and they'll go, I don't know. So you're not going to get much <laughs> out of them. Uh, but with email and texting and so forth, the opportunities for teachers to communicate with parents is never been better. And I think teachers love having parents more involved in in the education of kids. It helps students greatly to have a parent at home that reinforces ideas at school. So I think that communication was always there. Uh, Perhaps this makes it a little bit easier. Perhaps it just tells the parenting world you you have the right to go step in and make demands of public school teachers, perhaps. Um, And the library thing... People could challenge library books right now under current policies in school districts. Maybe this is just uh, shines a light on that opportunity so people that object to people reading about the real
0: world uh, will be able to challenge books that teach kids about the real world. Well, and Tim, I think what you're talking about here is a really fundamental question about this legislation that we'll just have to see, which is how much is it actually new policy Versus how much is it just restating things that are largely already being done, Um, and I think that's that's something that's probably just going to be hashed out. I mean, again, if Governor Kelly allows it to become law, um, that would be something you'd have to see hashed out in the real world. Yeah, the the
2: reason part of the traditional
0: reason that the legislature takes a break and comes back
2: is to give governors an opportunity to veto or sign legislation. And it gives the House and Senate an opportunity to run veto overrides. And I'm pretty confident that there's going to be
0: some of that work at the end of the month. Yep. So, uh, Noah, um, finishing up here with you, uh, we've also seen some uh, some interest, actually long running interest, I think, from both chambers about sports betting legislation, um, allowing Kansans to place wagers on sporting events. So what's become of that?
3: Right. So <clears throat> after five years of wrangling on the issue, the House was able to push uh, a sports wagering bill across the finish line, 63 to 49. It survived a, an attempt to send it back to committee uh, late uh, in, the, in the waning hours uh, of the session. Uh, but the Senate did not take the bill up before adjourning until April 25th. There's still some optimism that they will, but uh, they did not choose to do so uh, late on what would be Saturday morning at that point. There is a provision that got tucked into it, and it's part of the reason that it did have to weather that attempt to send it back to committee, and that's that 80% of the revenue is going to go toward a new fund uh, that would basically be to attract more professional sports teams to Kansas. Now, the obvious one on everybody's mind would be the Kansas City Chiefs with rumblings that maybe they're uh, looking into jumping across the border from Missouri. But what that ends up doing, it results in the state revenue for this new wagering outlet to be pushed down below to, to, to levels well below other states. New York is at 51 percent. Pennsylvania, 36 percent. Tennessee and Arkansas at 20 percent. Kansas would be 10 percent.
1: So that Kansas wouldn't get much revenue from this because it would all be going into this big fund for luring. Not just not necessarily the Kansas City Chiefs. It could be Major League Soccer. It could be anything they want, really.
3: On the other side, beyond just the fund concerns, you know, there were the typical concerns uh, about. Uh, enforcing gambling addictions, the uh, potential this could have to, you know, destroy Kansas families is what uh, a lot of people, uh, a lot of Republicans were, were concerned about. Um, there were some Republicans that, you know, pointed the finger at their own party and said, you know, we're, we're passing gambling, we're passing alcohol, we're passing marijuana-related bills. And, and they saw this as a, another step toward a new Republican party, as uh, Representative Trevor Jacobs uh, put it.
1: I think there are also some concerns about letting the casinos run the the books on this.
0: Well, we could presumably go on for the entire rest of the morning and afternoon and evening, going into all of the various pieces of legislation that passed or didn't. But I think let's draw a curtain on it there uh, for today. I'm sure that we'll be back to talk about what happened in the veto session or for other kind of legislative uh, action. But thank you so much, uh, Sherman, Noah, and Tim. It was fun.